I want to teach a message this morning entitled, Waiting on Jesus. I want to teach you how to wait. We know that Jesus is coming soon. We know that. The Bible teaches that. What we don't know is the day and the hour. We don't need to know the day or the hour. But we do need to know how to wait. Sometimes if we don't understand how to possess our souls in patience, we end up in trouble. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, look at verse 5. And the Lord directs your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. You may have a marginal reference that also says into the patience of Christ. But we want to work on that today. Let's pray. Father, for the next few moments as we look into the Word of God, speak to every heart. Thank you for bringing my wife and I home safely. We are grateful, Lord, for the fellowship that we have here, a congregation of people that love you and have hearts that are aflame with the Word of God. I pray, God, now that as I minister that you give them all ears to hear, encourage every one of us in these last days as we live. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians have been considered by some to be the earliest. First Thessalonians is believed to be one of the earlier epistles of Paul. But in every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians, there is some statement about the return of the Lord. There is some statement about our gathering unto Him about the catching away of the saints or the Lord's return. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll notice verse 1, it says, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Paul understood that one day Jesus was going to return and we would be united with him. That's the plan. That's the design. Verses 15 through 17 of that same chapter says, Brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions that you've been taught, whether by word or by epistle. What traditions? To believe that Jesus is coming. To believe that we'll be united with him. Verse 16, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Now we know from Paul that the coming of the Lord is called the great hope. That is to say, we are hopeful that one day we will all be in the presence of the King. Jesus may not come this afternoon, but he could come for any one of you tonight. We could very well be back here later on in the week or sometime early next week delivering a eulogy for somebody that has passed on. All of us were born to one day die. This mortal frame gets old. Our hair turns white or gray. The body features, they, they change. However, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? The Scripture is clear that one day... Jesus will descend from heaven with the shout of a trumpet, the sound of an archangel, and we'll be caught up together to meet him in disguise. I look forward to that day, but I don't know when that day is going to occur, 
But I do know that while I'm waiting for him to come, there's some things I should do. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, notice what it says in the last sentence of verse 2. All men have not faith. What is it that we can do while we're waiting? We can keep believing. You will always run into people who don't believe in God. But we can maintain the faith regardless of what anybody else is saying. I was reading earlier in the Sunday school lesson about the first Russian cosmonaut that orbited the earth. He was some 300 miles, I guess, or so up there in the stratosphere. This was 1961. His name was Yuri Gagarin. And the story goes that he orbited the earth in 108 minutes. And later, the Russian newspapers published a statement from him where he said, in orbiting the earth, I looked and I looked. And I never did see or find God. And so they used that as propaganda to show that there is no God, to promote their atheism. But even in Paul's day, there were people who didn't believe in God, and that's why he said at the end of verse 2, all people don't have faith. But just because other people don't have faith, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have faith. We should have faith in God because the Bible teaches that we are to trust God. Be faithful unto God until we die. Jesus put it this way. He said, the Son of Man will return, and when he returns, will he find faith on the earth? Well, he will if he comes a red cloud, because he's going to find me trusting and believing him. And it's my prayer that you also would have faith in your heart, that you would trust God. If you run into hardship, if you run into persecution, if difficult times come your way, are you still going to trust God? Are you going to walk away from God just because a family member says that they don't think there is a God? I hope not. But there are plenty of people that have. There are people that don't darken the door of a church until Easter or Christmas. But that's not faith in God. But we should walk with God and have a relationship with him that is secure and founded upon the word of God. This man, the Apostle Paul, says to them, we need to be delivered from unreasonable or absurd and wicked men because all people don't have faith. That means wherever faith doesn't reside in the human heart, you'll find absurd thinking and you'll find wickedness. Now, all over the earth, there are terrible things that take place every day, from kidnapping, lies, murder, extortion, blackmail, whatever. But typically, these things are done by individuals who do not have faith in God in their heart. Faith in God restrains our behavior. If you believe in God, it's going to control not only your emotions, but all of your habits and curb your behavior. If I believe in God, it's going to affect my speech. If I believe in God, it'll affect how I dress. If I believe in God, it will affect the places that I go, the people that I hang with, the kinds of things that I do or do not do because I have faith in the King. And while I'm waiting on Jesus to return, I want to do everything I can to cause my faith to grow. I want my trust in God to be stronger. I want to believe more in God today than I did last year this time. 
And you have to be diligent to do that. You probably had people that knew God at one time, but backslid and walked away from God. But notice verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Here's something else we can do while we wait. Pray. Learn to pray. Spend time in prayer. Now, prayer probably is one of the least Christian disciplines that are practiced by Christians. When I say pray, I don't mean quote a scripture. I don't even mean read the Bible. I mean talk to God. Have conversation with God. To pray is to present to God a petition, a request, or maybe even to pour out your heart in talking with God about this or that. There's no sense in you trying to hide from God how you really feel. He can see the intents and thoughts of your heart anyhow. He knows if we're hypocriting. He knows if there's bitterness in our heart. But the reason we're told to pray is because that gives us an opportunity to ask God to do for us what we're incapable of doing for ourselves. I wouldn't pray and ask God to help me lift this glass case. I can do that in my own strength and in my own power. I wouldn't pray and say, God, take my Bible and put it in my car. I can pick it up. I can walk out the door. I can set it in my car. But there are some things I cannot do and you cannot do. You cannot make your kids serve God. You can't make your grandkids serve God. You can't even save or change the community, but we do know a God who can. And by taking the time to pray, we can ask God to change situations and to encourage people in difficult times as we wait on our Savior to return. I don't know when He's coming. Again, But I do know that while we're waiting, he's waiting on us to talk with him because he still wants to answer prayers. Sickness in your body, he'd like to answer it, as Isaiah 53. People in your family that aren't born again, he'd like to see them saved. He's not willing that any should perish. You're having financial stress. Our God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory. Talk to him. Pray to him. Ask him. You can never ask too much of a God who has so much to give. And however big your biggest prayer possibly is, I can assure you he can do much more than your biggest prayer. In fact, the scripture says he can do much more than you can ever even imagine. So while I'm waiting on Jesus to come, I'm praying, I'm believing, I'm driving down the road, I'm praying in the Holy Ghost, I'm praying and I'm asking God to help me in church service. I'm praying, I'm saying, God, we need you to do this, we need you to do that. I'm praying for you individually, one by one, calling your name in the presence of God, saying, Lord, I'm asking you to minister to the heart of sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so. That's prayer. And I'm praying, Lord, help our little babies grow up and love you. Help them to grow up so that they'll never bring shame or disrepute to their family. Father, help our teenagers. Be with our young ladies and be with our young men so that they, oh God, won't have a kid out of wedlock. Help them to walk with you so that they won't get caught up in the drug scene or get caught up in some bad situation 
with alcohol. Lord, keep them from ever even having an appetite for alcohol at all. This is how I'm praying as I'm waiting on Him. Now, my prayers may be very different than any other pastor or may be different than some of the things that you pray, but I'm praying from the perspective of a pastor. You have to pray from the perspective as a parent, as a congregant, as a citizen in the community, but pray you must pray. You must pray. Because God's not going to answer just any kind of wishful thinking. Somebody's got to pray. And learn to do your own praying. Don't expect everybody else to spend time praying on your request. If it's a burden in your life, you pray. Mamas, daddies, when you've got that little baby in your arm and you're walking around holding them grandkids, pray over them babies. Father, I'm praying you keep this child healthy. Keep this child from sickness and disease. Lord, let your blessing be upon this child. And pray that prayer for people in the congregation. Father, preserve our marriages. Preserve our fellowship. Keep strife discord and splits away from our congregation. Father, I pray for pastor. Help him to have fresh bread for us when he ministers the word of God. Help him to have a good time in the word of the Lord. Help those that are associate ministers to be able to minister the word of God in truth. Father, prosper all of our families. See, whatever they put their hands to, let it be blessed. Pray while we're waiting on Jesus Pray. Now, Paul gave them a specific prayer. He said, pray that the word of the Lord may run free or have free course. Well, that's what we need. We need God's word to reach as many people as possible. Now, for us as a fellowship, what that means is several things. As a person who attends here, you're the best witness in this region for this church. You are the best witness. There are some people who may never come down here to Revival Tabernacle, but they know you, they'll run into you. And by running into you and being affiliated with you, they'll come to understand what we must be like. If outside in the community, if you're mean-spirited, impatient, angry, cussing folks out, they're going to think that's what Revival Tabernacle is. But if God directs your heart and my heart into the love of God, that is what they're going to believe we are. So everywhere I go, I realize I'm an ambassador for this church. I'm an ambassador for you. If you see me out in the community, I, I'm normally, unless we're doing work around the house or something, I'm normally dressed like somebody who's, who's busy in the ministry of the kingdom because I don't ever want you to have to hang your head in shame when you say I'm your pastor. I don't go to public events and tell dirty jokes. I don't go to public events and tell off-color jokes. There are no stories like that about me in circulation around this community because I don't get involved with that kind of a thing. I believe it is the role of a minister and pastor to live his or her life in such a way that he can be an influence on the sheep that they pastor. So in praying for me, your prayer should be, God, help him to stand. Help him to be strong so the word of God can go forth from our fellowship. So we're on radio, and we've been on radio in Nebraska for over 20 years, and people listen to that. My prayer constantly, Lord, let that word run free and touch the hearts of multitudes of people. We just went on radio in the Great Lakes region teaching some Bible prophecy uh, there, 
And, and our prayer should be, Lord, help us to saturate that region with the Word of God so that people will know our Savior really is coming soon. So be prayerful and, and ask God to guide you and help you. You don't have a circumstance that's bigger than your prayer. You don't. If you pray and have faith, God can change it. But if you pray with unbelief and you just think it's just going to get better on its own, it's not going to get better on its own. Somebody's got to pray. Somebody's got to turn the plate down and fast and say, God, this is what I need you to do. We need a miracle in our family, a miracle of reconciliation. You can do this, God. So while we wait, we pray. Well, notice also in Second Thessalonians 3, look at verse number, oh, which one is it here? We want to talk about verse 8 here. It says, Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, but wrought or worked with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. While we're waiting for the king, we're going to work in the vineyard. Be busy in the field working for God. It's planning season for a lot of people. That means there's a lot of time and energy and resources that are going to be expended in order to get some seed in the ground. But then it's time to work for just about everybody else all throughout the year, as with the farmer. There's always something to do. In fact, the first thing God did with Adam and Eve when he put them in the garden was gave them a job. He said, you oversee everything that's in this garden. You're responsible for it. When Jesus was looking for disciples, you'll notice he didn't call anybody that was lazy. Every single one of them were working. They were fishermen. They were collecting taxes. For us in these last days, the Scripture says we must work the works of Jesus while it is day. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have planters and combines with lights on the operated night. Once the sun set, it was dark. Couldn't do anything by candlelight. Work while it is day. Day gives us discernment. Gives us strong equilibrium so that we have balance when we're busy going about our day-to-day affairs. And as Christians in the vineyard, we have to expect that the Lord of the vineyard wants us to bring in a harvest before the king comes. I don't know when he's coming, but I do know he does want your grandchildren in the kingdom. He does want your neighbor to know his son. There's no doubt about it. He doesn't want you to pity your friends and your relatives. He wants you to love them into the kingdom of God. And and that's part of the work. Now, work requires sacrifice. It requires time. You have to put in time loving people that oftentimes aren't lovable. People that go out of their way to be mean-spirited. But yet Jesus said, don't render evil for evil. But he tells you, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them a drink. Somebody's in prison, go visit them. The whole point of that is you, you put coals of fire over their head. What does that mean? You take that cold heart, you're going to melt it through deeds of love. In the last days, God expects us to be workers in the vineyard. And Paul and his team did not want anybody saying they were lazy. They weren't. They were busy. Absolutely busy. So there are plenty of things you can do in the vineyard that doesn't necessarily require you to leave and go anywhere. 
You can be a missionary on your knees in prayer. In more than 200 countries on this earth, you can pray for each country. If that's not enough for you, you can have a burden on your heart for one country. You can get you a map or a globe, and you can pray for the major cities in each country if you want to, if you want to take the time. If that's not enough for you and you've got a little more time, not only do the major cities, but do the small towns and villages. If you know of people who serve overseas, pray for them. Call them by name. That's something that can be done. Purchase some tracks. Doesn't cost a whole lot of money. Order some old chick tracks and pass them out. Leave them in different places. Talk to relatives. Show love to people and let them know there is a way and a path of salvation. Jesus is the one that provides that. Work in the vineyard. Ask God to give people into your life and into your sphere of influence that you can deal with with regard to the house of God and the things of God. Be diligent about that. Say, Lord, help me to drive the church with a full car. Not an empty car, but a full car. And Father, provide us with people that we can bring to the house of God. We must work while we're waiting for the king to come. When I'm out in the community, everybody for the most part who knows who I am, know I'm a pastor. So since I'm a pastor, they expect me to talk about God. So since that's their expectation, that's usually what I do. I just start off that way. Where do you go to church? And if I ask somebody where they go to church... I usually give an answer like this, well, my family has gone to this church for such and such a period of time. Or they'll usually bow their head and just mumble something real fast because they're not excited about telling me where they go. But if they ask me, well, where do you pastor? Oh, I pastor Revival Tabernacle down there on the south end of town. How in the world you have never heard of that church? Well, look, if I don't seem excited about it, why in the world should they get excited about it? But if they understand that there's, there's life and vitality and excitement in me about my opportunity to pastor you, then they're going to want to know what in the world is it about RT that I need to go there and visit. But if they don't see anything in us, then they'll think, what's the point of getting up going anyhow? And this is why probably 75 to 80% of the town is in bed on a Sunday morning because they will tell you, I've known so-and-so who's gone to church all their life, and I've never seen any evident change. So if it's not changing them, how is it going to change me? While we wait, we work. But something else. Look at verse number 9. It says, not because we have not the power, but to make ourselves an example unto you. That means that while we wait... Let's be an example to people so we can tell people, follow me as I follow Christ. I wouldn't preach any conviction to you that I didn't want to live in my own life. But to have a model or an example is important. If you think of some of the people that you remember from your childhood, if you were raised in church, just begin to think about some of those older mothers or older fathers, men and women, carried a Bible to church, came and sat in church, were faithful and diligent to be in the house of God. That's the kind of example you have to intentionally set 
for the people that are closest to you. And by intentional, I mean, you can't just be haphazard about this. You have to be as diligent about being in the house of God as coaches want players to be about their sporting events. Now, you think of this. I've seen plenty of kids that have never missed a basketball game, never missed a wrestling tournament, never missed a baseball game, even in the summertime when the parents and grandparents are coaching. I mean, they're out there early before the kids get there. They're setting everything up. And when the kids are gone, they're still there. But those same people, you very often cannot get them to be diligent about the things of God. And I'm telling you, kids pay attention to that. They watch that. They observe that. They notice that. And then you say, well, I, I think you ought to come to church. They say, well, I know where we need to go to church. You ain't never want to go. Yeah. We have to set the example in that regard. Because all of us in here are connected to teenagers, young people, older people. I want as many elderly people as possible out here at Revival Tabernacle. I want as many middle-aged people as possible here at Revival Tabernacle. I'd like to see as many teenagers as possible here at the Tabernacle as well as the infants. Nobody should be left out. And so much of what I see in the church schemes are designed to go after the young people and ignore the older people. Utterly ignore them. Now, look, I've got enough sense to know that there is no next-generation church if you don't have a younger generation coming along behind them. But I also know you can't take the people that tithed, gave their time, gave their energy, were faithful to produce, and then cast them to the side just because we want to chase after young people. There has to be a balance in the church where we can see that God not only made it exciting to be young, he made it exciting to be old. You can love God, walk with God, have purpose in your life in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. Without turning around thinking that life is over now because I've retired or because I've gotten a little bit older. What should we do while we wait for Jesus to come? Model for other Christians and be an example for people in what they need to see. Are you a giver? Do you believe in tithing? You should. God gives to you. That means a dime out of every dollar, a dollar out of every ten, ten out of every one hundred. You ought to be willing to give to God. You say, Pastor, why? Well, look, you want God to give back to you. That's why you're praying. And if you're going to pray with an expectation that he'll bless you, then after he blesses you, he waits with an expectation that you'll give back to him. The whole thing is reciprocal. So why should we ask God to bless us if the blessing is going to produce in us a greater sense of selfishness? No, God doesn't want you to be a lake. He wants you to be a river. And what he gives you, he wants it to flow through you. And all throughout Scripture, coming from Abraham's time, straight on down through the end of the book, we are to be faithful in giving. I had somebody one time said to me, oh, well, you know, Pastor, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to tithe. You know, just got all this stuff that's, that's going on and, you know, money is kind of tight and don't have a whole lot of uh, 
extra money because I got all this medicine and all these bills and things like that. And he said to me, well, what do you think about that? I said, well, I said, look, God never authorized me to be his banker and to loan his money to anybody. You give God what belongs to God. But the other thing that I heard, here's what I heard. Pastor, I love how you teach the Word. I love how you feed us, but I hope you starve to death. I hope the church can't pay its light bills. I hope you're never able to go out to eat with your wife. I hope everything just falls apart. Most people, when they turn selfish and they start thinking about what's coming into their life and they don't want to give back to God, they don't think about how it affects other things. Missions. Feeding the poor. Helping bless people. You see? The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive, but most people like to be on the receiving end. God give me, God give me, God give me. And God sits back and he says, I've been given, I've been given, I've been given. When will you give back to me? Faithfulness demands that. And you will find if you're faithful to God, he'll be faithful to you. God will turn things around in your life in such a way that you'll wonder, how in the world are we even making it? And you'll sit there and look and try to figure it out. It will make no sense at all to your natural mind, but you've got a heavenly Father that has gone out of his way to take care of you because you have a covenant with him. Yeah, a covenant with him. I remember many, many, many years ago, the church was having a few financial issues. And and it got so bad where, uh, you know, I'm not married to any kind of radio situation at all. But we kind of had a meeting, and, and I said, look, I'll go off the radio. That saved a good uh, portion of money. So we were all kind of sitting there in the back talking about that. And, and I was all prepared to do that. And others were like, well, that, that might be, be wise. But, but I still remember sitting in there, and, and then Garth, he said, I think... We should just trust God and see what God will do, okay? So we did that. And we had some people coming and going at that time in the church, so just money was kind of doing a little of that roller coaster deal. But then somebody listened to us one day on the radio and drove all the way up here on the chance that I'd be in town. And I normally was in Hebron on that day. And so they called me, and sure enough, I was there, met with them, ministered to them, prayed with the individual, and then here not too much longer after that, because I didn't know anything about this individual, they said, you know, want to write a check for your church if, if you don't mind. I said, that'd be fine. And uh, then they gave me the check, not looking at the check, because they're telling me $25,000. $25,000. You'll never know what God will do until you trust him. See? And I haven't always been 100% in faith about stuff that I've done, but I'm telling you, whenever there's been a situation in my life where I was down here, there was always somebody else up here pulling me up. Whenever there's been a time when somebody else was down here, I was trying to be up here pulling them up saying, look, let's trust God. Model this Christian life and be an example for other people because they're paying attention. 
And it blesses folks. Let me give you just a couple of more here. I want you also to consider verse number 6 and verse 14 of Second Thessalonians 3. Verse 6, I command you, brethren, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition received by us. Look at verse 14. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. What else can we do while we're waiting on the Lord? We can wait and maintain purity. Try not to be unequally yoked with the wrong people. Paul says don't be unequally yoked, light with darkness. If you know someone is a shady character, pull yourself back. Pull back. Because you'll be pulled down with that person. If I put a table right here and I stood up on that table, and then I grabbed the hand of somebody standing next to that table, and I said, look, we're going to have a contest. I'm going to try to pull you up here. You try to snatch me off that table. I can tell you the easier thing to do would be to snatch me off that table. And as a Christian, you've got to be very careful the kinds of people that you run with. If you find that some people don't do anything but gossip and lie, just withdraw. No sense in filling your mind with all of that because you're going to establish for yourself the same kind of reputation he or she has. And don't, don't think that men don't gossip like women. That women don't gossip like men. Go to a barber shop. Go to a beauty shop. Go to a men's coffee gathering here in town. You'll find that guys can gossip just like anybody else. The difference, though, is if you're going to be talking about issues and talking about business, it's, it's different if you're not trying to be malicious. But if you're malicious with your conversation and you're attacking people's character and slandering them, that's wicked. There's nothing wrong about talking about issues going on in a church or issues in a community. But somehow or another, you've got to bring this thing back around to where you can maintain purity and godliness as an example to people. Because the Lord is looking for that. Churches are filled with hypocrites. The world is filled with sinners. Can God not find someone that wants to live a pure life before him? In any direction you look, you see alternative marriages. Children confused about their identities. You, you find language that has to be used that will not offend people anymore. Always a vocabulary that is constantly in a state of flux because we don't want people to feel bad about their sin. But if you look at verse 14, the last sentence said that he may be ashamed. Shame is not a terrible thing for people living in sin. They're supposed to feel bad. When children get into an argument and they're fighting and roughhousing and it turns bad, and mom and dad start chastising, there's a reason people instantly feel bad about their conduct. God designed it that way. It's supposed to be that way. I can't say it's always that way. There were plenty of times my brothers and I got into it when we were younger, and mom and dad told us to tell each one another we were sorry. And I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of shame in my game in those days. I was ready to get this thing going again. But my problem was I was too little. 
But shame is not a terrible thing. When someone steps out on their spouse and has a relationship with someone else, everybody can get together and coddle them and all of that. We should work to restore someone to their relationship with God. But for the moment that is discovered, that person should feel bad because I've sinned against my spouse and I've sinned against God. And when you find people that won't change in their behavior, Paul says, withdraw yourself. Just pull back. He says to the Corinthians, I've told you in the past, don't company with fornicators and extortioners, people like that. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He said if they call themselves a brother, he's not saying we can't spend time with people who don't know God. We can't reach sinners if we're not around sinners. But if you tell me you're a Christian and you're out here blackmailing people, and everybody knows you're blackmailing people, and you come here to church, I'll have a conversation with you. I'll talk with you. Yeah, if the conversation needs to be had, family should talk with them if we're saying we're Christian. So we work to maintain purity. But also in Hebrews 9.23, I'll read this quickly to you. It says, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. While we're waiting for the Lord to come, we should be looking for him to come. Looking for him to come. The same way a child sits waiting for the parents to come home from a trip or from shopping, we should be expecting him to come. I don't know when he's coming, but I'd be happy if he came today. I'd be happy if he came now. I'd be glad to just instantly go up and, and be in the clouds to be with the king right now. I am looking for him to come. Our lives should be ordered in that way. The Bible says the person that has this hope in their heart purifies themselves. I walk with God that I can look with the expectation that, that he's going to return. One day the trump of God is going to sound the dead in Christ are going to rise. We which are alive and remain are going to be caught up to be with him in the clouds. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul said, comfort one another with these words. One day he's coming. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah, it's going to be beautiful. And then the last thing I tell you from down here in verse 16, while waiting on the Lord, it says here, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Let's wait with the knowledge that God is with us. You're not alone. Plenty of times you may have thought you were all alone, but you're not. And peace is a lovely thing to have in a world like we live in today because there isn't a lot of peace in a lot of homes and a lot of hearts. And disturbed people tend to disturb other people. Troubled people often trouble other people because they don't have any peace in their heart. Angry, bitter, embittered people spew that out on other people. They can't even help themselves. They don't even know they're doing it very often because they've learned to live in a hostile environment because they've got hostility in their heart. But a Christian can receive peace that comes from the king, and he can provide a peace that gives wholeness and integrity to the Christian life. What does it mean to have peace? 
Be comfortable with who God is. Be comfortable with your life in God. To wake up each day knowing every day is going to be a blessed day. And to conclude the day knowing tomorrow's still going to be a better day because God's with me. If you don't know God's with you, how in the world can you have peace? You don't have any confidence. You don't have anything to rely on. You don't have any trust. And the Bible says don't be so concerned about tomorrow because tomorrow has evils and troubles and worries and anxieties for its own day. Just focus on right now. And if you need peace in your life today, he's the peace giver. And when he gives it to you, you can finally sigh heavily. <sighs> See? It's like wrestling with when, you, when you're trying to train a puppy, and, and that puppy is very rebellious and full of all kind of energy, and you're trying to break that puppy's spirit or that puppy's will, and you grab that puppy, flip it over on his back, and you hold that thing down. And you don't let him move. You keep your hand right there on his neck, and he'll keep squirming and whimpering and making all kinds of noise. It may take two minutes. It may take six minutes. But eventually there's going to come a point where he's just going to go, <sighs> and once he sighed, you know you control him now, or at least for the next few moments. But see, here's the thing. If, if you want peace in your heart, stop fighting God. Stop resisting God. Stop wrestling with God and just go ahead and go God's way. The only thing going to come out of wrestling that's between you and God, you're going to be the one that's hurt. That's what happened with Jacob. Jacob thought he could out-wrestle the angel of the Lord. He said, look, you're not leaving here until I get a blessing. And, I mean, they got the tussling, and before you know it, he got a blessing. But his hip was out of joint. He spent the rest of his life saying that was one more fight there. Boy, I'm telling you, see, it don't have to be that way. Just humble yourself in the sight of God and let God do what he wants to do. I promise you. There's nothing he wants to do that's going to hurt you. He just wants to help you. That's all. To help you. Let's stand. Yeah. Doesn't want to harm you. Just wants to help you. Yeah. While we're waiting on Jesus to come, these are a few things we can do and ask God to lead and guide and bless. And all of us that need divine help and favor from the king, we can always need a few more extra prayers. Isn't that true?